Columbo won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Fatal Attraction. Hide your bunnies, baby. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't cheat on your wife. <laughs> well, that's a good... Or your husband. <laughs> or your husband, yeah. You know, don't cheat on your husband. Uh, yeah. The next time we do this, it's going to be the opposite. We're going to do yeah. crazy mans yeah. Uh, yeah. going after ladies, because uh, it happens just as much. It does. And it's a lot worse. Uh, it's a great movie. I had not seen this in a long, long time. It'd been and, a while, uh, yeah. And I, I didn't... I forgot just how amazing this movie is. So good. It's such a... The, the, the thing that I'm loving about watching these movies is they're such a great time capsule of the era as well. Oh, yeah. There's something about 1980s New York yeah, yeah. location shooting yeah. that I, I love for some reason. And it's just – it's very different than any other era of New York. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. It's just for some reason it stands out. Um, I really dig the late 80s boxy cars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> boxy. So boxy. Practical. Not sexy. <laughs> All right, well, take yourself back to 1987. Ooh. January 20th, Terry Waite, the special envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury in Lebanon, is kidnapped in Beirut and released in November of 1991. Yeah, they had to get rid of him because he kept luring young boys into the cell with candy and promises of salvation. He was kidnapped for almost five years. Really? It's crazy. That is? Yeah. Long time, long time. April 27th, the United States Department of Justice declares incumbent Austrian President Kurt Waldheim an undesirable alien. It turns out that Waldheim worked as an intelligence officer for the Nazi army during World War II. Yeah, Kurt Waldheim. Nobody bothered to check before he became the prime minister, well, apparently. What was it, Operation president. Moonshot or something, where they brought yeah. all the Nazis over, all the rocket scientists? Yeah. Uh, yeah, something like that. You know, they didn't have a lot remember. of problems with Nazis when it no. came to the space well, program. Of course not. Of course not. Nazi NASA. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at it. Look at it, Adam. Yeah, Same I, number of letters. Starts with an N <laughs> and yes. an A. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It must be. It must be. It is. June 11th, the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom, led by Margaret Thatcher, is reelected for a third term at the 1987 general election. Yes, the Iron Lady. Yeah. <clears throat> Another crazy lady. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to uh, working class English folk around that time. Ooh, oh, they yeah. hate her. Oh, yeah. she hates the poor. She was the equivalent of uh, Ronald Reagan. It was. Uh, it was. Yeah, fun. they were a yeah. pair of fun times. Fun yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> September sixteenth, Fatal Attraction premieres in New York City. Uh, I found it really interesting that the soundtrack doesn't kick into this movie until like half an hour into the movie. No, and you don't really notice. No, no, not at all. I And it, and it comes in at the most perfect time. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's it, so oh, man. This movie scared so many people. Yeah. Look, if you watched our first film, uh, Play, Play Misty for me. Yeah. I was going to say Play Minty for me. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But uh, it's it's the same theme basically yeah yeah uh, it's the same movie basically with a little bit of difference but it's yeah. really interesting to see this in different eras in the early yeah. 70s versus the late 80s right and how society changed and the perception changed <laughs> it's true <laughs> god knows in the late 80s everything got way more violent well i think in both films there is a bit of not comeuppance but 
there is a responsibility yeah. that is shared by the male protagonist. Oh, yeah, yeah. He has a fault in this. Yeah. And I think in terms – the stakes are so much higher in this movie than Misty because yeah. he's married. He has a kid. Right. Clint was just kind of a playboy DJ, <laughs> you know, and he gets yeah, caught up yeah. in the you know wrong one-night stand and, and everybody else in his life pays for it. That's true. And he pays for it. But in this movie, the stakes are high because Douglas – is in a happy, all intents and purposes, a happy marriage. Yeah. Great kid, yeah. you know, got a dog, moving to the country, great life, yeah. but can't say no. Can't keep it in his pants. No. And this uh, just goes to show you that one decision <laughs> can completely oh, f up your life. Everything. Everything. Oh, Lord. Well, Fatal Attraction starts with James Dearden. Uh, Dearden is an English writer and director. His father was a respected director in England for about 30 years. Nice. In 1980, Dearden wrote and directed a short 50-minute film called Diversion that aired on British television. Yes, very good. I, I, I would love to see somebody who was like, he was a very non-respected director, but there, nobody respected this guy. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that I have no idea who this guy is, yeah. but he worked all the time. Well, sure. That's how you get respect. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, it, he didn't do anything that was like like an auteur status kind of stuff. It, it was, was just a, like he the just workhorse. Worked, he worked in TV and filmed forever. Yeah. Craftsman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Diversion was about a married man who had a one-night stand with a woman who wants so much more from him. It starred Stephen Moore, Sherry Lungi, and Morag Hood. I love Sherry Lungi. She's great. Uh, Stephen Moore is best known as the voice of Marvin the Paranoid Android in the radio and television adaptations of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Those are good. Uh, Do you ever a... listen to the radio one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he has such a great voice. Uh, Sherry Lungi is best known for the role of Guinevere in John Borman's Excalibur in 1981. I had such a crush on her. <laughs> Excalibur. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she's fantastic. She's a great actor. The Merlin in that movie is my favorite. <laughs> What are you doing? Morag Hood is best known for playing Natasha Rostova in the epic 1972 BBC television adaptation of War and Peace. Of course she was. Uh, although most people think she was miscast. <laughs> but, you know. I, I don't... I, I never saw it. Uh, I, did, I never did either, so... And I probably never will, to be honest. It's, it's like 18 hours long. Yeah, uh, I read the book. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, no. That's a slog, baby. Nope. nope. <laughs> well, I, I, I was in a period of time when I really pushed myself to read the classics yeah and i'll never do it again no no never do it again because yeah i love to read yeah same but i love to read what i love to read yeah and i love some of the classics three uh th- i was gonna say three's company three's company three's company it is a classic ever. it's a classic like the three musketeers is a classic yeah. i love that movie that, that era is fine book. and yeah. good yeah uh but some of these man like it, there you want to get through Moby Dick. You want to get... I mean, no. these are tough slogs. No. There's a period between like 1780 and like 1840 that I literally can't read anything from that era. I think the mandate was, how do we torture our readers? Well, I mean, technically Herman Melville did that on purpose. Yeah. It, it, but I mean, it's like... I, but I could not get through Moby Dick. Oh, my God. I couldn't get through the Scarlet Letter. I couldn't get through any of these where it's like, I'm just going to be flowery and have lots of prose for no reason. I did enjoy the Scarlet Letter. Ugh, but I couldn't get through uh, Like, Tess of the Durbavilles I read. It's just like, there's, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I think also, you know, there wasn't a lot of entertainment choices. So, like, True. a bigger book is right. more bang for your buck. It's like an RPG. Right. You know, right. you got something you could play for 150 hours, you know, 50 
to 80 of those hours are filler. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But you got a good chunk of But you of got us. it. Yeah, you, exactly. It's there. It's that's there. A, that's a, we're just going to start calling these novels the RPGs of literature. <laughs> uh, so Diversion, the original film, is available on YouTube in its entirety if you would like to watch it. Yeah, we were going to watch it. We did not. And we didn't. <laughs> uh, I will watch it at some point. Sure. I'm curious. Yeah, me too. And yeah. I, I enjoy all of those actors. Right. And after reading who was in it, I'm kind of uh, sad that I didn't watch it. Yeah. So Stanley R. Jaffe and Sherry Lansing became interested in the short film and asked Dearden to develop Diversion into a feature. Nice. Jaffe was the son of Leo Jaffe, who was chairman of the board at Columbia for a very long time. Nepo baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jaffe made a name for himself in 1969, producing Goodbye Columbus, an indie flick starring Richard Benjamin and Ali McGraw. Yeah, Richard Benjamin played Christopher Columbus, and Ali McGraw was the Queen of Spain. And the whole movie was just this... Them saying goodbye to each other before he went on his... You realize that people will think you're telling the truth? (laughs) Because no one's seen this movie. (laughs) Oh, man. I love Richard Benjamin. He was just in uh, You People. Oh, yeah. As this total... Oh, really? <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. Great. It was great. so good to see. The one thing I will say about you people, I enjoyed the movie. It, was, yeah. it wasn't one of my favorites, but I, I did enjoy it. But what was so fun was you got to see some of the great old actors. Oh, like yeah. Richard Benjamin and uh, oh, the, the original guy from MASH. Uh, he was in Alan that. Alda? No, 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 no. The, the, in the movie, the guy that was in uh, all the... Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Gould, Gould. Elliot Gould. Uh, Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, And yeah. uh, I think even um, Elliot Gould's Barney Miller was in it. Oh, really? It, wow. It was just wow. all these old ancient guys. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, so in 1972, Jaffe would produce Bad Company, starring Barry Brown and Jeff Bridges as young men fleeing the Civil War draft. Okay. Uh, he produced The Bad News Bears in 1976. Nice. Kramer vs. Kramer in 1979. Oh, tearjerker. <laughs> Taps in 1981. Great. And Without a Trace in 1983, his only foray into feature film directing. Without a Trace was good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, Jaffe is well-known in the Star Trek community as the head of Paramount who vetoed an interactive experience that would recreate the USS Enterprise in Las Vegas. Boo. Yeah, his, his reasoning was that, well, if it turns out to be crap, then it's going to be there forever. Yeah, he's and, not wrong. And, 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 but the Star Trek fans hated it. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> At this time, in the 80s, it would have been crap. I know, I know. It wouldn't have been anything, you yeah. know. They didn't have the technology to make it cool. No, it would it would have been uh, sad. <laughs> and everybody was like, "Star Trek, we don't, we don't yeah. care about these nerds, right? We'll, yeah. we'll just put some some of those weird triangle symbols on the blackjack tables and call it a day." Uh, Lansing started her career as an actor, but dissatisfied with her own acting skills, she decided to learn more about the film industry from the ground up. So self-aware. Exactly. She, that would make a good producer. Uh, she took a job with MGM as head script reader and worked on two successful films, The China Syndrome and Kramer vs. Kramer, both released in 79. Great movies. Uh, great movies. Her work at MGM eventually led, after a stint at Columbia Pictures, to an appointment with 20th Century Fox in 1980 and, and at age 35, the first female production president of a major studio. Yeah, she was incredible, Yeah, by the way. And, God, man... I, the China Syndrome is such a good movie. Oh, it's a great movie. They don't, it, every time we go through this stuff, it just reminds me of the stark difference today where we don't have these grown-up movies anymore. I know. I know. I know. Agreed. I guess we have the grown-up TV shows. I guess that's what we have now. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Because you know? they're true. more... Yeah. I mean, I think we're getting... Like Chernobyl and... Yeah. There's some definitely more adult stuff. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're getting like the presumed innocent series so we're getting those courtroom things and i've seen some pretty good courtroom stuff on tv too like the lincoln lawyer was pretty good oh yeah yeah i never saw it yeah yeah yeah. 
Uh, not the movie. Right, the series. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> the series, yes. So Lansing resigned in December 1982 and became a partner with Stanley R. Jaffe to form Jaffe Lansing Productions based at Paramount Pictures. Nice. In late 1986, Jaffe asked Nicholas Meyer to look at the script developed by Dearden, and Meyer wrote a four-page memo making suggestions including a new ending. Ooh. Meyer graduated from the University of Iowa with a degree in theater and filmmaking just like me. Wow. Uh, he was only about 15 years ahead of me. Why aren't you? Why didn't you get in touch I with him? I did not get it. I'm not as successful as Nicholas Meyer. You could have been. You're an <laughs> alumna. Uh, I totally didn't realize until the end of researching that I was like, oh my God, he went to my school. You know, I got to meet Sherry Lansing. Oh, did you? I did. And such a extremely nice, gracious oh, person. Oh, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, she's becoming head of production at 35. It's so weird. Crazy. I had so many friends that actually were kind of successful and did worked their way right, into the industry right. and had a lot of great work ethic. So I was able to spend a lot of time on the lots and spend a lot of time yeah. you know, at different companies and stuff. And so I got to meet these people, and it was very interesting. And it was really interesting to do it without the pressure of working for them or anything. Yeah. So I was just yeah. me. Yeah. So it was kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, so Nicholas Meyer first gained public attention for his best-selling 1974 Sherlock Holmes novel, The 7% Solution, a story of Holmes confronting his cocaine addiction with the help of Sigmund Freud. It's really fun. Have you seen this no, movie? No, I've not. Robert Duvall is, uh, uh, he was a, uh, um, Watson. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, so it was adapted into a film in 1976 uh, for which Meyer wrote the screenplay. The film was directed by Herbert Ross and starred Nicole Williamson, Robert Duvall, Alan Arkin, and Laurence Olivier. For his work adapting the novel, Meyer was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay at the 49th Academy Awards. Yeah, it was great. It's a very different take on Holmes. If you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, I 100% recommend it because the cast is stellar. Yeah, it's one of those that I, it's been on my, 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 my radar for a long time. I just have never seen it. It's one of those movies that popped up on Stars. Oh, yeah. Every couple of months. And I'm like, yeah, check it out. Intrigued by the first part of college friend Carl Alexander's then incomplete novel, Time After Time, Meyer optioned the book and adapted it into a screenplay. Not very well. Eh, well. <laughs> uh, he consented to sell the script only if he were attached as director. The deal was optioned by Warner Brothers, and the film became Meyer's directorial debut. Yeah. Uh, Time After Time was released in 1979, starred Malcolm McDowell, Mary Steenburgen, and David Warren. It was about H.G. Wells, David Warner, apparently I missed the R. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was about H.G. Wells' time traveling to the then-present uh, of the late 1970s. It was a critical and commercial success, despite Jim hating it. I didn't hate it. Okay, first of all, I missed... <laughs> Misspoke because I was thinking of the you Christopher Reeve. Thinking movie. of the Christopher Reeve movie, I knew, yeah, which, which is, I don't remember what that's called. But it's that's very not similar good. to Time After Time. Yeah. It's like something about time. It's after time after after time after time time. Instead of time after time, it's after time. No, after. I don't think it's t- after sure? time after. <laughs> I think it's time 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 time. Yeah. Yeah, time to, but I knew time to move I, on. I figured I hadn't seen Time After Time, but I I knew the Christopher Reeve movie. I know is not good. No, but this yeah. one's not bad. Yeah. Uh, Meyer was hired to direct Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, despite having never seen the first movie. Uh, Probably for the best. (laughs) He would go on to co-write the fourth and sixth Star Trek films while also directing the sixth. Uh, It's very possible the even-numbered Star Trek films are good maxim in film is because of Nicholas Meyer. Well, the even number of films are better. I don't know if I'd (laughs) use the G word. Well, I mean, Wrath of Khan is great. Wrath of Khan is a classic. Yeah. Should have stopped there. I liked the the movies. I okay. mean, I, I I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, so like, well, I was a I was a pretty big fan as a kid. Yeah, I had all the the Mego figures, oh, yeah. the and figures I had the, and stuff, the plastic yeah. uh, bridge action set. Oh, nice, that, nice. That hold that like I think 
folded into a carry case or something really cool. They all ever yeah like, yeah they all did that. Um, I hated Star Trek. Hated it. It was the most boring, god awful piece of crap I've, <laughs> I've seen as a child. And as a child, it angered me. It angered wow. me. Loved two. Two is one of the best sci-fi yeah. films. Not even Star Trek. I'd put it up there as a great yeah. action yeah. fun film. Three, fine. Yeah. Four, good. <laughs> uh, the one that I really like the most, I think, and I don't know the name of it, but it, it's the Shakespearean Klingon one. Oh. Uh, yeah, I don't know which it one. It opens up with the, the assassination on the Klingon ship, and, and he, they shoot all these people in zero gravity, and then these oh. big globs of purple blood. Oh. <laughs> and then the gravity comes on, and all, bloop, oh, it all flops, flops down. down. Oh, such a perfect opening. Nice. So there are some good Star Trek movies. There's sure, sure. Few and far between. Uh, Meyer would also direct The Day After in 1983, the TV movie about a nuclear attack on America. Uh, Meyer was nominated for an Emmy Award for Best Director for the TV film. Yeah, of course. It scared the crap out of everybody. Uh, it's such a great movie. Uh, a great series. Miniseries, I guess. Whatever. Uh, it's it, it. Yeah, it was very scary. Well, it should be watched again. I think people have become very cavalier when it comes to oh, nuclear yeah. annihilation. I mean, we're, we're at... Uh, <laughs> In the most, in the most unceremonious reveal, like the biggest nerd. It's so funny. I saw. I watched the reveal of you know the Doomsday Clock, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. How many minutes to midnight? Where we're at ninety seconds to midnight. Sure. We're the closest we've ever been to <laughs> complete annihilation. And I watched the dramatic reveal of the clock at 90 seconds and the four poor nerds that they had do it. <laughs> they were just so uncomfortable to be up there. Wow. And it took any sort of gravitas away because they're all just like. Right. Right. Anyway, we're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, I went through a phase of reading apocalyptic novels yeah. when I was in middle school, like Alas Babylon and On the Beach and stuff. So the day after was right up my alley. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. When I was a kid. Uh, I used to read Revelations all the time. Oh, God. Because it was the scariest. Oh. oh, it was great, man. If you love Stephen King or you like horror books, <laughs> read true. Revelations. There's some good crazy, writing in there. Crazy descriptions. It's the best part of the Bible. Yeah. I would read it before I went to bed because I thought it was so like crazy. <laughs> You're such a weird person. <laughs> I am so weird. Uh, a few weeks later, Meyer met with director Adrian Lyne and gave him some additional suggestions. Is it Lyne or Lynn? It's Lyne. Is it? Yeah, I I've looked it say- up because someone, uh, I was curious yeah. because I heard somebody say it and I was was like it's weird and then there was an interview with adrian line and they literally introduced him as adrian Lyne. <laughs> okay <laughs> and i was like no well, that answers my question well i've been saying I, it wrong i've always said lynn as well, yeah. well uh, but adrian line adrian yeah. line that's gonna take a little getting used to uh g- getting adrian line attached to the picture was a feat in and of itself uh at first dearden was going to write and direct himself but michael douglas was weary of working with an inexperienced director from a previous experience and asked for a new director to be used i get it yeah uh, more than 20 directors passed on directing the movie. Well, I mean, nothing had really been done like that in a while. Yeah. I mean, it's, I could see how it'd be like, eh, it just seems kind of, you know, but it would all depend on the performances. Sure, know, sure. But it's actors. also not, it's not an exciting movie to direct. You're not going to be doing yeah. a lot of like yeah. quick shots and action sequences. That's true. That's true. It's a very kind of. It, it, it unfolds, this film. Speaking of quick shots and action sequences, Tony Scott was considered for the directing job, but he turned it down to do Beverly Hills Cop 2. It would have been a completely different oh, movie. Yeah, it would have been yeah. so glossy, and, and it would have ended up, you know, somehow Michael Douglas would be a hero, and there would be a car chase. And, fly away in his plane. <laughs> yeah, and it would have been all her fault, and he never really would have had sex with her. It would have been right, some sort right. of, like, male fantasy. Yeah, that's you true. Know, BS. That's true. John Borman was also considered... 
Great director. Uh, great director. He would have been great for this. Uh, John Carpenter was interested, but felt it was too close to play Misty for me in past. Ah, Mr. Integrity. Yeah. I love him. Well, you know, he's like, oh, the story's already been told, so. Yeah, yeah, I love him. Which, yeah, it's fine, fine. Tells his own stories. Uh, Brian De Palma agreed to direct it, despite sharing the same concerns that Carpenter had, which got Paramount to greenlight the film, but he refused to stay on the project unless he could replace Michael Douglas, mm. thinking that Douglas was not right for the part. I don't think he was right. I agree. I he, agree. look. I enjoy a lot of De Palma's films. They're yeah. very Hitchcock, and he's a huge Hitchcock devotee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's got some really cool opening sequences, mm-hmm. and he's got he's but he's a bit of a gimmick filmmaker. Yeah, to me. Yeah, and as he progressed to like Snake Eyes and stuff, yeah, he was just a gimmick. Right, it director. lost all the actual like auteurness. Yeah, there wasn't <laughs> I mean, yeah. a lot of soul to his stuff. Right, it right. was very it was very visually interesting and pleasing, right. but. He's not a great actor's director, in my opinion. Right. And that's what this film desperately needs. Yeah. Uh, Lansing and Jaffe had a loyalty to Douglas, who was the first actor to express interest in the part and who himself had experience as a producer. So to keep Douglas on the project, they released De Palma. That was a good choice. Uh, De Palma has since admitted that he was wrong about Michael Douglas in the part. They had feared Paramount would cancel the project, but instead they merely delayed the start of production, which had at the time of De Palma's departure been just 10 weeks away. Good Lord. Yeah. That's not a lot of time for pre-production and rehearsals. Well, I think he had done a bunch of pre-production Uh-oh. and then was released. Okay. Yeah. Lansing and Jaffe had good reason to keep Douglas on the project. Douglas had received the rights to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest novel in 1971 from his father, Kirk, who had acquired the rights to the novel in 1962. Yeah. Kirk Douglas. <laughs> I'll give it to you, son. <laughs> Kirk was hoping to play the lead himself, but was deemed too old. What? I'm not too old. Uh, I'm Kirk Douglas. It should have been made in 1962, maybe. Yeah. Like, a, yeah. He's a great actor, too, by the way, Kirk Douglas. Oh, he's great. Uh, Nicholson would go on to win the Academy Award for playing the part. Uh, Michael ended up winning an Academy Award for producing when it won Best Picture in 1976. An amazing movie. Oh, great movie. Such a great movie. Absolutely and Chucky's movie. in it. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Good old Brad Dourif. That's fantastic. Him. Best role he's ever done. Yeah, he was, oh, he was stuttering. Fantastic uh, in that, yeah. Oh, Billy. Poor Billy. It's a great... Poor, poor Billy. <laughs> in 1979, Douglas both produced and starred in The China Syndrome, co-starring Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon, about a nuclear power plant accident. That's another one that just scared the F out of everybody. Well, I remember that. It didn't take long because the Three Mile Island accident took place 12 days later. <laughs> it was so <laughs> And you know the producers... No, the producers were like, okay, this is awful, but oh my God, I, I can't believe it. This is going to be so Our good. Our numbers are going to be so much higher. <laughs> I mean, we feel really bad about this, but oh my God, uh, we're going to make so much money. It's crazy. It's so prophetic. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Douglas's acting career was propelled to new heights when he produced and starred in the Romancing the Stone in 1984. Oh, what a great movie. Uh, that's the first movie I remember him from, sure. and that's what endears me so much to him. Well, it's a great character. It's a great part. The Kim. chemistry between yeah. he and Kathleen Turner is palpable. Yeah. Uh, he's funny. He's he, he's so charming. Yes. And, like, he's just so, yeah. It was fun because he played such serious parts. Even mm-hmm. going back to his real debut, which was The Streets of San Francisco with Carl, Mal- right. Carl Malden, right. which was a great show. But he was always so serious, Michael yeah. Douglas. Yeah. And to see him playing kind of a goofy, yeah. you know, uh, he was like an incompetent Indiana Jones. <laughs> He, he, just, was. He, he just tried really hard. He tried hard and he lucked into things a yes. lot. <laughs> and it was just a, a career-defining performance oh, yeah. that t- took him to a complete different trajectory. Uh, it's why I love Michael Douglas. I why most of us do. watch anything he does. We don't love him because of the China Syndrome. 
Yeah. Uh, it also reintroduced Douglas as a capable leading man and gave director Robert Zemeckis his first box office success. Nice. Uh, the film also starred Danny DeVito, a friend of Douglas, since they had shared an apartment in the 1960s. Yeah, they worked together. They were such good friends. I want a sitcom of Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito living together. <laughs> I think that it would be absolutely amazing. Uh, it could be animated and they could do it. It would voices. be amazing. Um, but yeah, like they did, they only, they not only did these movies together, but they did War of the Roses oh, with yeah. Kathleen yeah. Turner again. Yeah. A great movie. Uh, it's It was such a dark comedy. It turned so many people oh. off, and I love that movie. I was way too young when I saw that. Oh, it was so good. But you could tell the way they were. I mean, they it, in the interviews with those yeah. guys oh, yeah. at the time and stuff, they just love each other. Oh, yeah. That's my favorite thing is yeah, friendship. Yeah, I know. I know. I agree. Uh, it was followed a year later by a sequel, The Jewel of the Nile, which Douglas also produced. Mm. It wasn't as good. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Uh, but getting Douglas for Dan Gallagher was a challenge as well. They considered a slew of actors for the part. He said, I won't be ignored as Dan. <laughs> uh, the laundry list of actors considered for Dan are... Christopher Reeve, Dan Aykroyd, Jim Belushi, Nicholas Cage, Chevy Chase, Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, John Hurd, Kevin Klein, Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, Bill Murray, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, Dennis Quaid, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Martin Sheen, O.J. Simpson, Sylvester Sloan, John Travolta, John Boyd, and Bruce Willis. Okay. Pretty much everybody that Pretty was working much. in Hollywood at the time. I think Kevin Klein would have been perfect for this part. Kevin Klein would have been great. I would have loved to see him in this part. I think it would have been a career-defining moment for Steve Martin. I, I think, think he if, would have done really well in this. I think it would have completely changed the trajectory yes. of his career. Yes. And he would have been brilliant at it. Okay. Selfishly? <laughs> I would have loved to see O.J. Simpson in it <laughs> for the irony coming yeah, up yeah. in the next few years from that show. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so many of these guys were bad. Christopher Reeve would have been great. Dan Aykroyd, interesting choice. I think he might have been able to pull it off. Uh, I just, I, I don't. Belushi, I no. love Dan Aykroyd. He's just isn't, I don't think he's attractive enough to be, that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but he's like an every, I don't know. He would have been interesting. I don't think Cage would have been good. I don't think Chase would have been good. Costner would have been fine. De Niro would have been great. Ford, yeah. you know, we saw him oh, do yeah, it. He, he would have been. He would have been great in it. Yeah. Ford would have been awesome because he's got that every, I mean, we saw him in yeah, Presumed Innocent yeah, basically yeah. play this part. Totally. But. Yeah, he would have been great. Rick Moranis. That's an interesting choice. I would kind of love to see Rick Moranis I, in this. It would definitely be that every man, like, wow, really? You know Rick Moranis read the script and was like, really? <laughs> you, you, you get, you're you asking, wait, the, the lead part? You know, I'm Rick Moranis, I'm not right? going to play the, the, the lawyer friend? <laughs> <laughs> like what? But yeah, and the other, you know, all the yeah. Arnolds and the Sylvester Stallones and Bruce Willis. Yeah. John Voight, no. No, no, absolutely not. No. Uh yeah, Martin Sheen would have been great. It did. I mean, it's it's a very well written part. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, Steve Martin would have been fantastic. I would love to have seen. Him yeah, play. my top two would have been Martin or uh, Kevin Klein. Yeah, Kevin Klein. Oh, Kevin Klein's so good. Tom Hanks. Nobody would have bought it. No, no, not at that time. He wasn't. If it had been, if he had been ten years older, maybe. But yeah. like, yeah. But this is just another thing of like shotgun casting. They yeah, just, yeah. You know, these are all the people they sent the script to. Right. Right. You know. Right. Uh, Michael Douglas was also working on the film Wall Street at the same time as, as this film. Crazy. To avoid a schedule conflict, Douglas would alternate between each film during the week. You could see in his performance of both films that the other character slips in occasionally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he's like, greed! Uh, I mean, no. Uh, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, after releasing De Palma, Lansing and Jaffe turned to Adrian Lyne. An avid moviegoer during his school days at Highgate in England, Lyne was inspired to make his own films by the work of French New Wave directors like Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, and Claude Chabrol. Mm, snooty snoots. Yeah. Uh, Lyne was among a generation of British directors in the 1970s, including Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, Tony Scott, and Hugh Hudson, who would begin their career making television commercials before going on to have major success in films. Their techniques in making commercials were admired and copied by major names in the film industry, with lines stating, I remember making this advertisement up in Yorkshire. When I get this message that Stanley Kubrick had called, he'd seen an ad I'd made for milk in which I'd used a particular type of graduated filter. He wanted to know exactly which filter I'd used. It was the milk filter I seen! <laughs> it was the milk filter, yeah. And he used it for his milk scene in... For the milk bar in (laughs) In, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, there you go. Uh, (laughs) Line made his feature film uh, directing debut in 1980 with Foxes, a look at the friendship of four teenage girls growing up in the San Fernando Valley starring Jodie Foster. Such a great movie. You seen that movie? No. That's along the lines of that summer camp movie where the girls made the bet to lose their virginity. virginity, It was that kind of genre. We had this great teen... Again, we had these really great... Teenage movies that were serious, yeah, and that treated kids like real kids, right? You know, they, right. they wanted to have sex, they wanted to smoke dope, they wanted to get drunk, you know, just what yeah. kids do. It was a like bad news bears. I mean, we right, we really right. represented kids great in the seventies. <laughs> uh, I do want to point out that I think it's interesting that Adrian Lyne made his first movie about the San Fernando Valley, being from England. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, people say that the San Fernando Valley is very similar to it, Yorkshire. Yeah. It is. It is. It's our sister city. Uh, Line made a splash with Flashdance in 1983, starring Jennifer, Jennifer Beals in her feature debut. Oh, you forget how huge. Oh, that movie was <laughs> huge. Movie. Everybody, I've said this before, poor sweatshirts, man. Oh, yeah. All the collars were cut out. So many damaged sweatshirts. So many supple shoulders popping out from sweatshirts. Even <laughs> I had my sweatshirt. Oh, yeah. Flash dance sweatshirt, crop top it, and you were mm. dancing in your in your kitchen. Yeah, yeah spl- and I, I had a thing of water that I splashed on me. Yourself, and I, yeah, like, stretched out on a chair. It was sexy. The film generated over two hundred million dollars worldwide and was the third highest grossing film of nineteen eighty three. The film was also nominated for four Academy Awards with the theme song "What a Feeling" winning the Oscar for best song. Yeah, by Irene Cara, who just yeah, passed away recently. Yeah, she did. She did. R.I.P. Yeah. In 1986, Lion attracted controversy with Nine and a Half Weeks. Based on a novel by Elizabeth McNeil, the tale of a sexually abusive relationship starred Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger. There was a period of time <laughs> in the United States of America when Mickey Rourke <laughs> was the sexiest was huge. man. Yeah, he was huge. He was the go-to guy for sex movies. <sighs> Whether it was so weird. this or Wild Orchid or... Uh, God, what was the one where he, the, with the devil, with Val, uh, Oh yeah, I don't remember. Robert De Niro and, and yeah. the Cosby Girl and all the controversy. But yeah, that pudgy weirdo. Oh yeah, what was it? Because I remember the oh, such a good only movie. thing I remember for that movie is the, cracking open the hard boiled egg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the devil. Yeah, uh, yeah, a great movie. Um, but yeah, he. It's just, it's it's just unfathomable looking at him today. I know. I know. No offense, I know. man. Look, I loved Mickey Rourke. Back in the day, man, Pope of Greenwich Village is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Diner, amazing. He's a great actor. He kind of went Lulu 
He did. You know, he, he went he, a little a little crazy. Became a boxer, all this stuff, got a lot he of just plastic got surgery. Weird. Oh, so much plastic surgery. Now he just looks like an old cartoon lion. <laughs> Really sad. But, yeah, for a while there, everybody wanted him. Uh, Although considered too explicit by its American distributor and cut for U.S. release, it became a huge hit abroad in its unedited version. I've never actually seen Nine and a Half Weeks. You can leave your head on. Uh, That was the whole thing. You can leave your hat on. That was the song, and she did a little strip dance. Oh, yeah. Producers Sherry Lansing and Stanley R. Jaffe both had serious doubts about casting Glenn Close because they did not think she could be sexual enough for the role of Alex. Barbara Hershey was originally considered for the role. Great. Yeah. She would have been great. Great actress. When Glenn Close's first a- uh, sorry, when Glenn Close's agent first called to express her interest in playing Alex Forrest, he was told, "Please don't make her come in. She's completely wrong for the part." Yeah. Uh, director Adrian Lyne also thought that Glenn Close was the last person on Earth who should play Alex. Well, let's be honest. I mean, to it's this a, point. Yes, yes, all of us yes. would have said the same thing. You know, yeah. The, yeah. the mom from the world according to Garp. I know, I know. Or, you know, whatever nerdy pants from the big chill. I don't <laughs> right, remember. Right. I mean, she, you know, she was just always played these forthright, obnoxious characters. So other actresses considered for the part of Alex Forrest are... Oh, good Lord. Take a deep breath. <laughs> it is about three times as long as the men. Here we go. Uh, Elizabeth Shue, Sharon Stone, Sally Field, Gilda Radner, Emma Thompson, Rosanna Arquette, Christina Baranski, Ellen Barkin, Kim Bassinger, Jennifer Beals, Candace Bergen, Jacqueline Bissett, Kate Capshaw, Stalker Channing, Cher, Jamie Lee Curtis, Beverly D'Angelo, Gina Davis, Allison Doody, Julie Louise Dreyfus, Christine Ambersall, Morgan Fairchild, Carrie Fisher, Jennifer Gray, Melanie Griffith, Mary Gross, Farrah Fawcett, Jody Foster, Linda Hamilton, Derry. Daryl Hannah, Goldie Hawn, Holly Hunter, Amy Irving, Olivia Newton-John, Diane Keaton, Cheryl Ladd, Kelly LeBrock, Jessica Lang, Jennifer Jason Lee, Kay Lenz, Heather Lucklear, Amy Madigan, Madonna, Kelly McGillis, Bette Midler, Debbie Moore, Lena Olin, Catherine O'Hara, Jennifer O'Neill, Annette O'Toole, Michelle Pfeiffer, Annie Potts, Kelly Preston, Mimi Rogers, Isabella Rossellini, Meg Ryan, Susan Sarandon, Jane Seymour, Ali Sheedy, Sybil Shepherd, Helen Slater, Sissy Spacek, Mary Steenburgen, Meryl Streep, Kathleen Turner, Sigourney Weaver, Rachel Welch, Rachel Welch, and Tuesday Weld. Wasn't yeah. she a little old at the time? Pretty, yeah. <laughs> okay, so basically every working actress. Uh, and one I did leave off that I forgot to put back in was the actual original original was Diana Ross. Really? Trying to get Diana Ross to play the part. That would have been good. She's yeah. a good actor. Yeah. Did you ever see Lady Sings the Blues? No. Oh, no. Oh, great movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Judy Davis, Barbara Hershey, Miranda Richardson, and Deborah Winger were the first choices to play Alex Forrest to audition for the part. Judy Davis would have been righteous. Yeah. Out of that. And Barbara Hershey would have been good. Miranda Richardson, ah, uh, and Deborah Ringer, great. But but I think out of those, Judy Davis would have knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Elizabeth Shue had to turn down the part because she'd already agreed to star in Adventures in Babysitting. Too young. Uh, yeah, she would have been too young. Sally Field turned it down after reading the script because she didn't think anyone would buy her playing the antagonist. <laughs> I agree, but I also think it would have been a career-defining. It would have been interesting. It would have been amazing. Because, again, like Steve Martin, if you had, like... Honestly, if you had Steve Martin and Sally, Sally Field, Field, everybody would be like, oh, this is going to be really fun. You would chalk the crap out yeah. of everybody, especially Sally Field boiling, she, a, boiling a bunny. She could have pulled it off. She's a good actor. Amazing. I mean, uh, Olivia Hussey was offered the role of Alex. She's good. She was in. Uh, she did a good job playing Norman Bates' mother in, oh, yeah. in uh, one of the sequels to Psycho. Was it two um, or three? She, I think uh, it was two. That with uh, Henry Thomas was playing the young. Oh, no, 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 no. That was that was three. Yeah, 
And Hussey was his mom. I think so. That might have been, may, may, may even been four. Maybe. There's so many. I watched the first three during Halloween, and I don't. I think it's four, because I don't remember the Henry Thomas in any of them. She just sued. They were not. The sequels were not very good. <laughs> I don't know if it was recently, but or was this, she, she sued the Yeah, Olivia Hussey, because she was in Romeo and Juliet yeah. when she was underage, and, and they said they weren't showing any nudity, and then they did. And so she's, yeah, she just sued yeah. him. Her and her male co-star sued. Yeah. I remember when our English teacher showed <laughs> us that movie and she she was such uh, she was not my favorite teacher, <laughs> but I remember she was like, "Okay. There is a scene in this movie. Oh god. That has some nudity. I will not tolerate any hoots nor hollers nor any sort of disruptions to the film. If you make a disruption during this scene, you will be immediately sent to the principal's office." And expelled. Uh, I remember watching this in class. They didn't tell us any of this, but it was just kind of like, oh. Like, I remember I was looking around going like, wait, wait. Yeah. There's, there's boobs. What's going on? Like, a lot of tents pitching I, in that room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't show young men. The, great, the most cruel thing to do would be to show that movie and be like, all right, everybody get up. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, it, it, was a, it was a great version of Romeo and Juliet. It was it done was. really well. It was. Uh, she was fantastic in it. I, they both I, were. They both were, yeah. So when she read the screenplay and came across the rabbit in the boiling pot sequence, Hussey, who also works as an animal rights activist, was so disturbed that she quickly turned the role down. I get it. Yeah. Uh, so up to this point in her career, Glenn Close had played warm, fuzzy Earth Mother women and been nominated for Oscars three times. Yep. Uh, she was nominated three years in a row for Best Supporting Actress in the World According to Garp in 1983. Excellent performance. The Big Chill in 1984. Great performance. And The Natural in 1985. Again, great, great. performance. She was great. Uh, all deserved. Well deserved. She, I, I think she gets a bad rap. I love Glenn Close, but mm-hmm. she's a very severe looking woman. And she, yeah. and the parts that she plays are fairly severe. Yeah. Or they have like a tinge of obnoxiousness to them right. because she's very good at playing human characters yeah. and finding, you know, I mean, we'll get into it with the yeah. research, but she does the research and she's really good at inhabiting these characters. Oh yeah. And a lot of the characters she's played aren't the most likable right. characters in the world. And I think she gets a bad rap for that. And that just shows what an amazing actress she is. Yeah. Well, she was amazing, but not enough to win any of the act- the Oscars. Unfortunately, she lost all three times. Yeah, because people have preconceived notions about right. poor Glenn Close. In fact, over the span of her career, Glenn Close has been nominated eight times for Academy Awards and has lost every time. Her and what, O'Toole? Peter O'Toole. Yeah. She's tied with Peter O'Toole for the most nominated actor that hasn't won. Again, Peter O'Toole. I know, I know. I, I don't agree. Get it. I don't get it. Uh, she's also been nominated for two BAFTAs, 13 Glo- Golden Globes winning three, 14 Ugh. Emmys winning three times, and 10 SAG Awards winning twice. Nice. Uh, Golden Globes, sham. But all I those know. other ones. I yeah. I mean, I think the SAG Awards are probably the – to me, I think the SAG Award would be the most – uh, prestigious for me because yeah. that's given to you by your peers. Uh, the 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 thing is, I didn't include this, but uh, I'm pretty sure that all of her wins came after like 2006. Oh wow! It was uh, she won the Emmys for Damages, yeah, and uh, and then the, the the SAG was for some other stuff. But like, yeah, it, it was like she it was like they just were like, oh yeah, we we should probably give you some awards now. Well, she does all those parts were great. I, exactly, she was she's amazing a fantastic actor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Close was persistent, and after meeting with Jeffy several times in New York, she was asked to fly out to Los Angeles to read with Michael Douglas in front of Adrian Lyne and Sherry Lansing. Because she knew she could play the part. This is what I love about her. Yeah. Because this is not 
anybody looking at this and reading the script, nobody was thinking, Glenn Close. Right. She might be the right one. You would think that with them having such a hard time finding an actor, that the one person that's like, I want this part, they're just like, no. But, you know, you look at every actor that they were at, asking, they're, not, they're all pretty. Yeah. You know? And I'm not saying Glenn Close isn't pretty, but she's, a, she's not – she's classical Hollywood right. beauty. Right, She's a very she's, – she's more of a handsome woman. Yeah. And, you know, a beautiful woman, but in a very different way. I In this movie, the way that she was shot and, and how Michael Douglas and the, that, that, you know, when they were on their tryst and doing their stuff, I got it. Like, I totally got it. I was like, yeah, that's somebody that I could see kind of being like, yeah, I'm going to go have a fling with. I don't know. know. I thought it looked like he was having sex with a poodle. <laughs> that was bestiality. <laughs> Speaking of, before the audition, she let her natural frizzy hair go wild because she was impatient at putting it up, and she wore a slimming black dress she thought made her look fabulous to the audition. Yeah, she looked great. The frizzy hair worked. It didn't work when they showed her forehead, but it worked when she had bangs. Right. This impressed Lansing because Close came in looking completely different. Right away, she was into the part. Close and Douglas performed a scene from early in the script where Alex flirts with Dan in a cafe, and Close came away. Convinced my career was over, that I was finished, I had completely blown my chances. <laughs> Lansing and Line, however, were both convinced that she was right for the role. Line stated that... An extraordinary erotic transformation took place. She was this tragic, bewildering mix of sexuality and rage. I watched Alex come to life that day. Imagine just giving someone a chance. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm going to tell it. So, you know, I acted for yeah. a long time. and Once or twice, yeah. And mostly comedy. I was a comedy guy. Mm. And I got this part, like a sexy part. And I didn't think I could do it at all. And it was so refreshing to be able to do that like it's a yeah to be able to challenge yourself to get completely out of your comfort zone and do something that you're not known for or that nobody thinks you right. can do and pulling it off such a great sense of accomplishment yeah you know uh, it's it, it's as an actor that's the, the stuff you crave you want to do the I mean, stuff that scares you that you don't think you can do hollywood wants to put you into a box yeah. and say this is what you should do for the rest of your career sure yeah. and and the chance to be able to do something else is amazing. Even when you're as big a star as Glenn Close, you're still yeah. getting pigeonholed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Alex Force was such a radical change for Glenn Close, and she played the part so well that she got stuck playing similar characters for quite a while. Again, same thing. She is such a good actor yeah. that people believe that's who she's that crazy because yeah. she's so good. Yeah, she's great. Actors who do research, you know, I, look, everybody's got their method, everybody's got their own yeah. thing. But one thing I will say is research is key because you want to be true to the part. Oh, you yeah, want to be true yeah. to what, what you're playing. And especially somebody who's, who's quote-unquote crazy. Right, the quote. right. Well, it's easy to play crazy. It's easy to play stereotypical yes. cuckoo bananas yes. crazy. But to do justice to people who actually have mental illness or right. whatever, right. you want to make it real. You have to make Alex a sympathetic character. Yeah. Because if she's just a monster... Then it's just uh, a who, monster Who cares? Movie. Yeah. yeah. Then it's, I mean, it's, yeah. Then we're watching Freddy Krueger. It's boring and predictable. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, we have a hero and we have a villain, but we really don't because it's his fault. <laughs> Is Michael Douglas the hero? No. He's, he's a, he causes all the problems in this now, movie. <laughs> did he double dip? I don't remember. Did he double yes. dip? So he double dipped yes. like Clint Eastwood. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he did, did because she was like, "Oh, you got to come, you come work for my house, yeah. come work here." Yeah, and then they end up banging all day. Yeah, it's because like, he, they only hear what they want to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm never going to be weird about it. Yeah, I'm cool yeah, with you being married, yeah. baby. I don't want nothing. And he just hears what he wants to hear. His little wanger hears what he <laughs> wants to hear, and it just goes leading him around. <laughs> When Glenn Close finally secured the part, one of the first things she did was to take the script to do different psychiatrists. She asked them, Is this behavior possible? And if it is, why? The two psychiatrists who reviewed the script at Glenn Close's request both came to the same conclusion. Alex Forrest's behavior was, in its own way, classic behavior. Oh, yeah. Their diagnosis was that Alex had been molested and sexually tortured for an extended period of time when she was a child. As a result, any emotional pain that she might experience that is associated with sex would provoke an extremely violent response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Close was uncomfortable with the bunny boiling scene, which she thought was too extreme, but she was assured on consulting the psychologist that such an action was entirely possible and that Alex's behavior corresponded to someone who had experienced incestual, incest, wow, incestual sexual abuse as a child. There is nothing more horrific yeah. than destroying a child. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's really, it's very rare to come back from that. Yeah. Uh, that 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 it affects you the rest of your life. It's it's disgusting. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's not even the right word for it. It's there's not even a word probably no. that 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 conveys how horrible that is. I know we're a couple of goofballs talking about yeah, goofy stuff, yeah. but this stuff comes up. They do a good job of portraying somebody suffering from mental illness. Yeah, yeah. up until the end, and we'll talk about that yeah, because I yeah. really feel like the ending does a incredible disservice. Yeah, I agree. To and to I, the and story, Glenn Close would agree with you. But, uh, I agree with her. But, you know, yeah. it's well, still we'll a movie. Yeah. It's a movie. So, yeah. But still, it's like, it's it's a cop-out to me. I agree. It's a agree. BS. Oh, hey, guys. <laughs> it's Bob. I just, let me explain. Okay? Uh, well, the, we'll get to it, Bob. Okay. You just go sit on the bed and hang out for a bit. You guys seen my kids? No. Go find them and come back. Yeah, Bob, Jesus. <laughs> Glenn Close has stated that for years after playing Alex Forrest, she's been asked to come speak at psychiatry seminars. Uh, Glenn Close stated about her character... I just wanted a character that would demand more of me. I'd never played a character who was supposed to be sexy. I knew I could do it. They were so sure I was wrong. They didn't even want me to read because they were embarrassed. Yeah, and they were wrong. They were all wrong. Yes, so and she I mean, proved them wrong. She did, to the point where she couldn't stop getting parts like this. Exactly. It just goes to show you how incredible of an actor she is. Yeah. And you know what? Always listen to Glenn Close. Yes. <laughs> they cast Ann Archer as Beth Gallagher, uh, Michael Douglas's wife in the movie. She is the daughter of actors John Archer and Marjorie Lord. Oh, I've had such a crush on her. She's so... Oh, she oh. Was, that was the first thing. We're watching this movie together, and the first thing I said to Jim was, why would you cheat on her with Glenn Close? Sure, sure. <laughs> and it's terrible because Glenn Close is amazing. But like, and, 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 and like I said, the movie proved me wrong. Like, I kind of understood, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, I see the allure of Glenn Close and, and all this. But Ann Archer was just so pretty. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, he's been, look, you eat steak for 20 years, you get tired of your dick, buddy, that's what they say. Uh-huh. So then you go out and eat trash. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh no, Glenn Close uh, isn't trash. He's more like, uh, I don't I, know, she's like a hot, spicy. I'm just very anti-cheating. <laughs> I, yeah. I think we all are. Well, not everybody. On not, the show we are. Not Dan Gallagher. <laughs> no. Uh, I won't be ignored, Dan. <laughs> John Archer's real name is Ralph Bowman, but won a radio contest where he won the top prize, an RKO contract in the name of John Archer. So he kept the name John Archer for the rest of his career. It's an awesome name. 
I just find it odd that he literally won a prize, and the prize was you have to change your name to become a star. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, Ralph Bowman yeah. isn't as cool as John Archer. No, I agree. I agree. Lord, Marjorie Lord, is well known for playing opposite Danny Thomas on The Danny Thomas Show for eight years from 1956 to 1964. Yep. So Archer was born into the business. Yeah, Nepo uh, baby. She was declared Miss Golden Globe in 1971, helping hand out the awards at the ceremony. Yeah, I wonder how she got that job, Mommy and Daddy. Nepo baby. <laughs> <laughs> so she, but they all are. That's that's the whole point of the Miss yes. Golden Globe. It's always the daughters of, of, of some stars. And this entire industry is nepotism. Oh, it is. It is. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> no, no, it is. That's why you and I are not successful in Hollywood. Not nepo babies. <laughs> I, yeah. She made her film debut in 1972 in The Honkers, starring James Coburn. Yeah. So Western comedy. So okay. So there was these. Okay. So The Honkers was about this cowboy named Johnny Honks. And uh, the reason why they called him Johnny Honks is he would come into towns and he'd go straight to the saloon and straight to the saloon dancing girls and go honkity 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 on their breasts, which was extremely, you know, at the time it was considered kind of funny. But yeah, if you watch it now, it's a little bad. <laughs> it's been bad taste. Uh, funny enough, the movie is actually about a bunch of geese. So I no, I'm just kidding. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he would go honk the geese. No, I honkity honkity. Uh, Archer was originally a Christian scientist, but she and her husband have been members of the Church of Scientology since 1975. Nice lateral move. Uh, between 1982 and 86, she was a spokeswoman for Applied Scholastics, the literacy training organization sponsored by the Church of Scientology. <sighs> this broke my heart. Same. I did not know that Applied Scholastics was funded by the Church of Scientology. You would be surprised at how many things are funded know, by Scientology. Anything if you anything that's anti-psychiatry, yeah. anti-psychotopic drugs, anti uh, anything you know, pretty any, rational. Any kind of self-help. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Any any sort of thing that doesn't uh, make you put your hands on a couple of joysticks to <laughs> test your thetons. Uh, yeah, I remember growing up applied scholastics. I and I had no idea. Neither uh, did I. That's very disappointing. Her son Tommy was the head of the Church of Scientology's Celebrity Center International in Los Angeles. Uh, Archer continued to appear in feature films, including Good Guys Wear Black in 1978, starring Chuck Norris. Hey, Chuck Norris. Uh, which movie of uh, Sylvester Stallone's was that a ripoff of? Um, I don't. I don't. Th- I think it was a. I don't remember. I know I've seen Good Guys Wear Black. I yeah. don't remember. It was, I think it was a Western, so I'm sure it was a ripoff of a Clint Eastwood movie. Maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Paradise Alley in 1978, opposite Sylvester Stallone. Hey, is paradise. <laughs> and Hero at Large in 1980, co-starring John Ritter. That was a really fun movie. Did you hear No, I've never seen it. Right, I'm not BSing. Yeah. So Hero at Large was one of the first, like, pretend superhero movies. Where oh, really? John Ritter pretends to kind of be a superhero, and they're not sure if he's crazy or not. Oh, and, and Archer, yeah. yeah, it's a very, it's a fun movie. Okay. It was one of those movies that played constantly on HBO oh, yeah. Yeah. at the time. Also, uh, I want to point out one of my favorite performances of hers, which is in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Oh, yeah. Uh, the story of uh, her husband and his hunting buddies finding a dead body oh yeah it's a it was a really great good. story and she uh, isn't is fantastic she's a fantastic actor you know i this is why i hate to know anything about <laughs> I actors know. That i love because I it just disappoints me and look everybody's there's in my opinion 
there's really no difference between Scientology and any other religion. No. They all no. have their own belief systems that make them feel better about stuff. But I will say Scientology seems to be very abusive towards yes. its members from what I've seen. And, right, right. Uh, well, and I, I will say that having not known she was a Scientologist until this is good on her because, I mean, she's not running around screaming about it and, like, yeah. you know, trying to convert people. Well, that you know of. Well, I mean, I think I would have heard about it. I mean, I you know. Uh, her big break was in Fatal Attraction. Uh, Archer continues to act and can mo- most recently be seen in the miniseries The Dropout about uh, Theranos. Oh, nice. And um, Elizabeth, whatever her name is. Elizabeth Theranos. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> I think so. No, 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 it's Elizabeth something uh, else. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Moss. Not Moss. That's not right. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's about Theranos. We all know what that was. Uh, Ellen Hamilton Latson. If you don't know what it was, it was about a botched bad... It was blood? about a lie. Yeah, a lie about uh, <laughs> testing your about blood. About testing blood, yeah. Uh, there's a, there, yeah, it's it's great. Uh, you watched The Dropout, didn't you? Or no. Not? Uh, oh, okay. Which one was it? No. That was the fiction one. No, no, no. The, the one with the Amanda Seyfried? Yeah, yeah. No, I wanted to because I heard it was yeah. really good. But the, yeah, I watched the documentary. It was fascinating. Yeah. Her voice and the way that she, <laughs> the, the she talked and the way that she figured out her voice was really weird. <laughs> Ellen Hamilton Latson was cast as Ellen Gallagher, the daughter. In 1986, her mother read an article in the paper about an open casting call for a new untitled Adrian Lyon film. Hmm. They were looking for girls ages 6 to 8, and prior acting experience was not required. Nice. Ellen's family had never considered getting her into the business, but she was just about 6 at the time, and it sounded like a fun thing to try. That sounds fun, Mom. Let's do it. (laughs) She competed against over a thousand other girls, and despite not having the look, Ellen's natural talent won her the part of Michael Douglas and Ann Archer's daughter in Fatal Attraction. She was great. You thought she was a little boy. I thought she was a boy. I got to be honest. And well, they didn't I, give I her bad. No, no. You shouldn't because they didn't do her any favors. They gave her no, a boy's cut. They did. And it, it was just, she just seemed like she had more masculine features for, for a six year old. Yeah. Yeah. She had a five o'clock shadow coming through. I just, I was convinced it was a boy. And then it was like, no, no, it is. The more she was on screen, the more she talked, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, it's obvious. But Then you were like, okay. You were a little uncomfortable for Well, I was, just, I was just confused. <laughs> just kidding. I knew it was supposed to be a daughter. And I was like, wait, did I read yes. that wrong? She doesn't look like a girl. She looks like a boy. Uh, to get the des- desired reaction shot from Ellen during the scene where she witnesses her parents having an intense argument, Michael Douglas was behind the camera bullying Ellen Latson and threatening to take away the stuffed unicorn she was holding, saying, Look at that stupid unicorn. I'm going to throw it in the garbage. Which is why she begins crying and hugging it tighter. Asshole. I... <laughs> After director Adrian Lyon yelled cut, Douglas immediately apologized to her, said he was only kidding, and hugged her. I'm only kidding. I, I, come on, come on. I'm only... Yeah, the six-year-old is like, oh, funny. Good yeah. one. In an interview years later, Douglas stated, uh, I feel pretty guilty, but you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, BS, buddy. She's six. Yeah, I know. I know. You could probably I mean, do it without threatening her and maybe her toy. She, maybe they tried, and she wasn't doing it, and that was his way of speeding it along or something. Sure. By... by... <laughs> <laughs> By traumatizing her. That's his producer hat coming on. He's like, we got to keep moving. You just got to keep going. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, Ellen we'll would... get her therapy later. We'll pay for her therapy. Oh, yeah. Ellen would appear in a number of TV shows and movies, perhaps most notably as Ruby Sue, Randy Quaid's daughter in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Well, you liked her better in that because she looked like a girl. Because she, she had girls. She, she was, was so good She was that. cute in that. She was super cute. So she wasn't cute in this. Well, sure. But I mean, and they purposely tried to make her adorable and endearing. Yes. In, in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. She was great in that. 
Uh, she's the one that mistakes Chevy Chase for Santa Claus. You Santa then, Claus. And then he, he buys the toys for them yeah. because of her and all that stuff. She got this little axe hand. She did. She was, you old Santa Claus. She was great in it. Yeah, she was great. After going, going to boarding school in Vermont at 15, she ended her acting career. Her passion for acting never went away and now runs a podcast about being a child actor. Ooh, I'd like to listen to that. Yeah. Uh, Stuart Pankin was cast as Jimmy. Oh, I love me some Pankin. <laughs> Pankin started his career in TV, most notably as Bob Charles on 46 episodes of Not Necessarily the News from 1983 to 1990. I love that show. Did you ever watch that I show? I did. I did. Later on. So, like, I don't know if the quality had declined or whatever, but I didn't watch very much of it. It was one of the first news parody shows. Right. And it, I think it was on Showtime or HBO. Was HBO? It was one of those two. Uh, I think it was on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. But it was hilarious. And because it was on cable, they got away with a lot of stuff. Right. right. And Stuart Pankin was just a ball of crazy energy. <laughs> like he always is. I mean, the guy, for like a big guy. Yeah. Yeah. That guy's got a lot of physicality. Yeah. He's, he's he's great. And he's usually funny. He's usually yeah. playing because he's so goofy and he's so funny looking. And he's so, you know, goony and funny acting yeah, yeah. <laughs> that he's always like in sitcoms and stuff. And to see him play, it was so cool to see yeah. him play like the best friend role yeah. and do it great. Oh, and it was so believable. Yeah. Like, I totally bought the fact that they, they knew each other for a long time and they were good friends. I just love seeing really uh, over-the-top comedic actors pull in like a really grounded, awesome performance and uh, and, and, and continue to get to do that. Because, yeah, right, right. You know, most comedians are really good actors. Yeah. Because they're so effed up. They have great timing. I mean, well, okay, yes, they're effed up. That's yeah. one reason. But they have great timing. One of my favorite performances of Robin Williams was this tiny part in Dead Again, directed by yeah. Kenneth Branagh, yeah. where he played this psychiatrist who was just so effed up that he couldn't really do it anymore. And he wow. sat in this freezer in this like restaurant or something, and Kenneth Branagh would have to come talk to him. But oh, he was weird. just so affected. It was such a dark and awesome part. Wow. And I've, I've never forgotten that. It, it's it's wow. not a great movie. Yeah. Because uh, for me, Kenneth Branagh's director is very Shakespearean, and yeah. that doesn't translate yeah. well, like the over-the-top whatever. Sure. And I, I, he's gotten better, and this is one of his first non-Shakespeare yeah. things, so it was a, you know, a right, little bit right. theatrical. But it's a well worth seeing because it's an in- interesting movie about uh, – Reincarnation, yeah, yeah, sins of the past and stuff, but uh, but it's definitely worth seeing for okay. Rob, Robin Williams' Williams. performance. Okay. It is right. unbelievable. He's great. He was he was great in everything. Yeah. Uh, Stuart Pankin would appear in forty five episodes of the Hundred Thousand Dollar Pyramid from nineteen eighty six to nineteen eighty one. He was very energetic. He was he was I'm sure he was great on the show. Twenty episodes of Super Password between eighty seven and eighty eight. Yeah, he was a game show guy. He was. Uh, he played the voice of Earl Sinclair for 65 episodes on the TV show Dinosaurs from yes. 1991 to 1994. Yes, the dinosaurs version of The Simpsons. Yeah, which is uh, has the greatest ending to a TV show ever. Yeah? Where they heavily imply that they all die. Because <laughs> <laughs> a good meteor comes around? Yes. Not the baby. They heavily imply it. it does, it's not, yeah, anyway. Not the baby. It's ah. super weird. It, it's super weird. Uh, Pankin continues to act in TV, film, and does a lot of voiceover. Good. He looks great, too. I saw a picture of him. Yeah. He looks good in his 70s. He's, guys. he's so good. Yeah. Uh, Ellen Foley was cast as Hildy, uh, Pankin's wife in the movie. She was great. She was fantastic. Uh, Foley gained public recognition through singing a duet with Meatloaf on the hit single Paradise by the Dashboard Light from the 1977 album Bat Out of Hell. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. 
I hate meatloaf. You do. I hate meatloaf. Oh, I can't stand his music. You like Mikey O'Day? No, I do. I greatly dislike meatloaf. Oh, I love meatloaf. Uh, I well, was proven. Dead. I was proven right. So whatever. What do you mean? <laughs> he became a dick. He became Did a he? huge. Oh yeah, he became hugely conservative. Oh no. Oh, you didn't know that? No. Oh yeah, he was a huge trumper. Yeah, he was great in Fight Club. Yeah, sure. That was the broken clock. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, a uh, Foley's part was recorded individually and in one take with Meatloaf present in the room so she could sing in character, uh, which is impressive. Yeah. Uh, although Carla DeVito, who toured with Meatloaf in support of the album, is featured in the music video, DeVito is a lip syncing to Foley's vocals. Yeah, phony. I, I had no idea. I had no idea. Uh, she's released five solo albums. I didn't know that she yeah. was. Yeah. Her best-known television acting, ro- acting role is that of Billy Young on Night Court for season two, after which she was succeeded by Marky Post as Christine Sullivan, who ah. had been Reinhold Weege's first choices for The Public Defender. Yeah, I, I like Billy, though. I thought she was great. Yeah. Uh, Post was unavailable while under contract on the television series The Fall Guy, which is why she couldn't do the part. Uh, Foley was reported let go from the series because producers felt her relationship with star Harry Anderson was more like that of a brother and sister than as potential paramours. Yeah, which was interesting because it wasn't the same old crap. I agree. Although Marky Post was great in the show. Of course she was. But we all but love Marky. I love this is what I know Ellen Foley for. Yeah. And like she was fantastic. She's always great. Uh, apparently, as of the mid 2000s, she teaches voice at the Paul Green School of Rock Music in Manhattan, New York City, New York. Nice. Yeah. Jane Krakowski uh, was cast as Christine, the babysitter. Blink and you miss it. One tiny scene. Uh, Krakowski made her feature film debut playing Randy Quaid's daughter on the original National Lampoon's Vacation in 1983. She was unbelievable in that part. And I'm sure that there was probably more of her in this that was cut out. Yeah. Because it was literally one there shot. Was, there was a bunch of supporting actors in this that were cut. Jane Krakowski also appeared in 109 episodes of Search for Tomorrow from 1984 to 1986. It, it always just boggles my mind that these people, like, before 20 were on like 6,000 episodes of a soap opera. I know, I know. Uh, she obviously, as you can tell, had a very long career. She was in yeah. Kimmy Schmidt and amongst other min- She was in 30 Rock. I oh, mean, yeah. like, she was in a ton of stuff. She's like, amazing. She's- also, soap operas were the acting school oh, of yeah. the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. And that's where everybody learned how to and if you, get their marks. You were an actor in New York in the 80s, you were in a soap opera. Yep. And if it was the 90s, it was Law and Order. <laughs> that is true. Uh, Fred Gwynn also appeared in the film, but most of his scenes were cut. Another <clears throat> very quick blink and miss it. I love Fred Gwynn. He's so good. God, he's got the greatest voice. <laughs> That's Fred. Uh, Herman Munster. The Munsters, yeah. <laughs> so the original ending had Alex committing suicide while dressed in white and Dan being arrested for her murder. Uh, it was changed when preview audiences felt that Alex was not brought to justice. This ending still appears in the Japanese release. It's so much better. Uh, the ending was reshot in the worship room of the Unitarian Church in Mount Kisco, New York, for three weeks in July of 1987. Uh, the decision to reshoot the ending garnered mixed reactions from the cast and crew. Director Adrian Lyne initially disliked the idea, but agreed to, to do it after a Paramount executive offered him $1.5 million. I think it's wrong. I will not do it. I will not compromise my art. I'll give you $1.5 mil. I will do it. I will do it tomorrow. When are we going to schedule the shoot? I, yeah. Uh, When Ann Archer learned of the news, she was flabbergasted and immediately burst into tears. That's not good. She probably had to go get her thetans taken care of. (laughs) Uh, Glenn Close was staunchly opposed to the idea and even refused to take part in it. Good. Uh, I get it. I Yeah. According to co-producer Sherry Lansing. Close felt sympathy for Alex, 
a woman battling mental illness, and fiercely resisted cliches about another female psycho. Good for her. Yeah. Because this is the freaking Jaws ending. This yeah. is the freaking uh, ending of Friday the 13th. This BS. I know. I know. The monster's dead, and they rise up. It was just BS shock value crap. Crap. It, it was definitely Hollywood executives deciding they needed to have a snappier ending. It completely discounted the rest of the movie, in my opinion. Like it, 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 it turned her into just a crazy person. Because yeah. I don't know if she... boiling a bunny is is really messed up. Yeah, but the leap from that to murder, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty. I mean, I don't know. Part she of it, played it so well. I don't. Yeah, I, I, I could see there being a path where she could go down that. But, but I agree. I think the original ending would have been stronger. It but. just turns it into a monster movie at this point. Yeah. At least her performance was amazing when she's sitting there digging into her leg with the knife as God, she's talking. So crazy. She yeah. took a horrible, corny, cliche BS ending right. and gave it validity through her performance. Michael Douglas, on the other hand, had no objection to the new ending and felt that the reworked ending would help the movie. I don't care. I just want to make money. <laughs> Close is, he's such a producer. Close and Douglas got into an argument over the ending, after which time Close contacted her friend William Hurt, who finally convinced her to participate in the reshoot. Well, Glenn, you should probably just do it. Oh, William Hurt. I love William Hurt. I do, too, and he died, too, damn it. Yeah, I know. That was disappointing. During the reshoot of the ending, Glenn Close suffered a concussion during one of the takes when her head smashed against a mirror. Good lord. After being rushed to the hospital, she discovered, much to her horror, that she was actually a few weeks pregnant with her daughter. Oh my god. Oh my god. Close also developed eye and ear infections from being dunked repeatedly in the bathtub water for hours. Gross. To this day, Close said watching the ending makes her uncomfortable because of how much she unknowingly put her unborn daughter at risk from the physically demanding shoot. I bet. That was, that'd be so scary. Her daughter is an actor now. Uh, she was an actor then. Well, <laughs> gave a great performance. <laughs> her first uh, role was in Fatal Attraction. Uh, I wonder if she puts that on a resume. It's ironic because Glenn Close, she says she's 36 in the movie and that she's pregnant and she's like, this might be my last time. Glenn Close was actually 40 when she shot this. Really? She was pregnant for the first time at 40. I I can't believe she was 40. Yeah. Yeah. She she's looks amazing. She, yeah. She, she has aged so well. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, I hate saying that kind of crap because that just like puts the onus on people to look good as they get older. Sure, and I think, sure. you know, I don't want to get into like plastic surgery and Madonna <laughs> right, and all that right. stuff, but it's like, you know, there's a, there's something to be said to aging gracefully For, yeah. or, or just, just letting, let, letting it happen. Let yeah, nature take its course. Exactly. Don't fight it. Yeah. The more you fight it, the more you look crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fatal Attraction spent eight weeks at number one in the U.S., where it was the second highest grossing film of 1987 behind Three Men and a Baby. That apparently, Glenn Close has gone on record saying that so many women have come up and said, you saved my marriage. Oh, it's like, what? ouch, you should get a divorce. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> How? I don't know. Because the... they then became more inquisitive about what their husbands were doing, I guess. Well, I husbands don't, were I like, don't oh, know. I'm not going to cheat. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not cheating now. She's going to go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't have any bunnies, do we, honey? <laughs> In the UK, it grossed a record two million pounds in its opening weekend and spent ten weeks at number one. Uh, in Australia, it was the first non-Australian film to gross two million Australian dollars in its opening weekend, second to Crocodile Dundee. Oh, you call this a knife? <laughs> hey, 
Yeah, it, because it was so different. Again, we really hadn't had anything like this since Play Misty for me. Yeah. And that's more of an experimental, you know. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. A, a kind yeah. of a, a lazy daisy kind of walking around film. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it had a very loose, loosey-goosey approach. Yeah. yeah. But this was a tight, top thriller that, until the end, gave us a, a, a pretty well-rounded performance from yeah. the quote-unquote villain. Yeah. And it was more of a psychological study about what happens when you make the wrong choices. Yes. And how your choices not only affect you and your family, but affect the psyche of this woman. Right. It, right. In my opinion, this is all his fault. Of course. All of it. Her death, everything. Because he, look, oh, nice guy who stayed around when she manipulated him by cutting his wrists or whatever. What else is we going to do? Oh, I'm out of here. Uh, bleed to death. I mean, I don't know. He could have. <laughs> right. But there's no. But yes. It's like, you know. In, in, He's not that kind of guy. But still, it's like even in. in well, play Misty for me is different because he wasn't married. He had like a girl on and off, yeah. on and off again girlfriend. And he, you know, was nice to her and took care of her when she tried to kill herself or she, whatever. She was obsessed. But this is different because he's married with a kid she knew he was married right and 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 he was just looking for something easy peasy yeah and you know was stupid enough to believe that he could just have this fling and with no repercussions and just go right back to his life but you know there's always going to be other people right right well and that's what i love about this movie is that it's about glenn close's character Punishing him mm-hmm. for making that choice. Punish? Well, yeah, but also in her mind, he led her on. Right. He pushed her buttons. She's he, not. She's not a whore. She's not. You know, like I'm not that kind of person. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's manipulative. It's. Well, it's, it's, she's, it's. She's like a spider pulling him into the trap. Right. right. And then, and then as she's eating him, being like, "Well, it's your fault." <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's you know, it's it, it was a much more nuanced version of this story. Right. I think. Right. Up until the end. Right. You know, and then like, and it, it needed uh, to be honest, it needed the Hollywood ending. But I well, that's why it was so successful. Yeah, because yeah. it it gave the audience the moment of cheering of killing the villain. They and, needed they needed the comeuppance. Yeah, it's not unfathomable to think that she's going to try to kill the wife. She, well, I guess that's not what I'm mostly upset about. I guess what I'm most upset about is her popping out of the water like right. Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then yes, having the wife have to shoot yeah. her, you know, yeah. which is like the ultimate revenge. Right. It's just it takes such a great movie and and gives it such a crap last few seconds. Right. Like I I'm cool with her showing up. I'm cool with her digging into her arm. I'm yeah. cool with the stuff that she said. You know, you're replacing yeah. me. You know, her delusion is so much that she feels like she's the wife. And that yes, this, that, yes. that Ann Archer's the imposter. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, she's keeping her from having her life. Right. But the truth is, Ann Archer murdered a pregnant crazy woman. <laughs> well, we don't actually know if she was pregnant or not. I think she was. I, I, I mean, she could have been. But I, I, to me, I don't think she was. But well, I, yes. I mean, yes. Especially given the ending of the movie, I would think that she's not. I think if it had been with the original ending, I would believe more that she was pregnant. Well, in the original, the original second ending, the last line was going to be Ann Archer. She shoots and goes, I shot you in your baby. <laughs> baby. Prepare to be aborted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the second one. He <laughs> did a few takes with her ad-libbing some lines. 
They, they, <laughs> they, they, they cut out. It's awful. It's awful. Oh, oh Lord. God. Okay, well, it went on to gross $320.1 million worldwide, making it the year's biggest film. Juggernaut. Huge. These outliers, these films that come out of nowhere and dominate, like this or Flashdance, these films that you don't think have any sort of business being these right. gargantuan right. hits. I love these. Yeah. Because yeah. it's – and especially at this time, these successes gave us great films. Right. Because Hollywood was smart enough to 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 trust their audience and be like, oh, we, we can make these films. Yeah. And they will make money. Yeah. Then they stopped making money, and then they were like, well, let's just do superheroes. Well, they stopped making money because they started to get real bad. <laughs> yes, of course. And they were all like Cinemax versions of this. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. We'll just throw in more sex, more sex, and it'll be fine. And yeah, and there were a thousand copies of this movie. And and, and I would say the disservice of to the movies that followed it, because yeah. obviously it proved it, these could make money. Right. So they made more of these, but I think the new ending was the linchpin that made them bad because yes. everyone then goes, oh, well, they're crazy. Yes. They're just crazy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It made yeah. it all crazy lady movies. Yeah. Oh, these crazy, crazy ladies. Oh, and geez. it's, and, and, you know, these victims, these poor male victims of circumstance. <laughs> oh, my goodness. These poor guys. Wow. It's, she obviously must have tricked him into sleeping <laughs> yes. with her. Well, she is asking for it. What did she do? You know, it was this whole kind of like yeah. male dominated BS. Um, but I think we're due for something like this. But I want to see a twisty. I want to see this done in the opposite because I don't think I've seen like a, you know there's well, you know there's like sleeping with the enemy in different movies the, of the TV show. You definitely yes yeah. But that is more. It's very nuanced stalker yeah serial killer right. kind of thing more than you know yeah yeah just somebody who has mental issues being triggered by right, a relationship right. and then we seeing what the repercussions of that is yeah i think th- are they remaking this uh they will uh it was nominated for six academy awards for best picture best director best actress for glenn, glenn close her first best actress nomination nice best supporting actress for ann archer her only academy award nom best screenplay based on material from another medium for james dearden and best film editing unfortunately it didn't win any of them really and no best actor None. for no not for michael douglas nope. nope and no supporting actor for Stuart pinkett no it was also nominated for four Golden Globes was shut out there as well. Uh, it is going to be remade on February 24th, 2021. It was announced that Paramount Plus planned to reboot the film as a series. It would be written by Alexandra Cunningham and Kevin J. Hines and produced by Cunningham, Hines, Justin Falvey, and Daryl Frank of Amblin Entertainment, Stanley Jaffe, and Sherry Lansing. Interesting. They're okay. coming back. Okay. Uh, Cunningham was a producer and writer on Desperate Housewives, along with writing for NYPD Blue and Rome. All right. I love Rome. Rome was great. Uh, and the Desperate Housewives actually is not bad. It it got bad by the end. The but first it was, it couple was of good, seasons were very seasons, interesting, yeah. yeah. On November 11th, Lizzie Kaplan was announced to play Alex Forrest in the new series, and Joshua Jackson joined as Dan Gallagher. I'm in. I, I'm down for that. I think they're both really good. Lizzie Kaplan's amazing. Lizzie Kaplan is unreal. They're, unfortunately, they canceled the Castle Rock show, the Stephen uh, King show. Yeah. And she did a season where she played Annie Wilkes. Yeah. The misery. She's and so good. God damn, she was amazing. And Lizzie is so funny. She you know, she was so great on Party Down and she was so True great. Blood, she was great. Yeah. She's versatile and she's an amazing actor. Uh, on uh, uh that Showtime series, the the about sexuality. Oh, yeah, and, the one with Clive Owen. 
Uh, no, no. Oh, no, I'm thinking of a different one. No, this was the one with her and M- Michael Sheen. And oh, yeah, 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 about the uh, sex researchers. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called. I don't either. Uh, uh, sex researchers. But anyway, yeah. Lizzie Kaplan is physically impossible for her to turn in a bad performance. Right. And she is perfect for this part. Yes. Perfect. Yes. And I and Joshua Jackson, too. He's a he's from... Uh, uh, He's from Dawson's Creek. Right, right. Yeah. He's a very underrated actor. He was great in yeah. Fringe. Uh, he was also, I didn't watch it, but there was another show like about cheating people oh, that yeah. he was on yeah. for a while. Um, when he was on, I think he's on the, I don't know if he's still on it, but The Vampire Diaries, I think mm. he was on for a long time. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I never watched I, it. I never watched it. It's a WB show. I never watched it. But he, I, I think he's great. He's perfect for this part because he's yeah. got that kind of Michael Douglas you, that yeah. feel to him where he's, he's just he's, kind of an everyman, you yeah. know? He's charming and he's like, you know, I'd buy him as, as a guy that could potentially make a mistake and pay for it. <laughs> I'm against remakes for the most part. Yeah. Reboots, you know. But I do like these television versions of this. Yeah. Like I'm looking forward to the television version of Presumed Innocent. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the television version of, of this. Because I think it's a different medium. It's a different way to tell a story. You can expand upon it. Yeah, and you can get such deeper into characters. It's yeah. more of a novelization, right, of of the story, right. you know. And because I think a straight movie remake, it's going to be garbage. Yeah, but this is something where they can really kind of creep their way through. Yeah, and build and build and build. And if they have a good director and good, and it looks like they have a good team going on. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to this. I'm down. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm curious to see it. I, I, I'll be excited to watch it. And yeah. Paramount Plus has been doing some pretty great stuff. So, like, I, I'm really curious to see. It seems like it's going to be shepherded pretty well. So Yeah, they've done, I've been watching their 1923, which yeah. is excellent, excellent yeah. show. Helen Mirren. It's so cool to see Helen Mirren and, and Harrison Ford <laughs> together again. Yeah, yeah. After Mosquito Coast. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, that's all I got. So, that's uh, a lot. Yeah. It was fun. This is such a great movie. An amazing movie. This is a great double feature with Play Misty for me. Yes. If you want to, you know, get yourself... This is perfect for your Valentine's. <laughs> uh, get exactly. yourself some wine and some dinner, something, uh, you know, a little adult, maybe some, I don't know, tortellini or, or some sort of uh, pasta dish, you know, with a salad or something, maybe a nice uh, uh, garlic bread to go with it, a couple <laughs> bottles of wine, and get your freak on. Watch some crazy. It's going to be fun, and it's also really interesting to watch the, the 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 same kind of story told in different decades. Yeah, yeah. And how the the time that these stories were told in affects the way that they were told. Right. Right. And they're different enough that it's not like you're watching the same movie, but they're no, same no. enough that it's a great double feature. Yeah, thematically opinion. they fit together very well. Right. And next time you're thinking about. Doing the do with some dirty stranger. Don't. Don't. <laughs> Just don't. Think about your family. Think about that person sitting at home and how much it's going to affect them. Exactly. Like 30. Look, let's be honest. It's going to be about, what, two minutes of fun, yeah. if that? Yeah. And then a, a lifetime, lifetime of misery. misery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so keep it in your pants, people. <sighs> All right. We'll be back next week. Uh, we're starting our Steve Martin short month. Steve Martin short. So excited about yes. this. Yes. Oh, we're going to go into these amazing comedic geniuses. Yeah, geniuses. Geniuses. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Keep it in your pants. Have fun watching the movies. And we'll see you next month.
crazy rich chick. I thought that was Jane Krakowski. That is Jane, Jane Krakowski. I am so confused. Jane Krakowski is from Kimmy Schmidt, and okay. she was in this movie. Okay, okay. Who are you thinking of? Did I say Jane Krasinski? You said Jane Krasinski, who I don't think is a real person. So that's not the Malcolm. <laughs> that's Jane Kaczmarek. All right, I've had a stroke. All right. On, uh... We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, The Jeffersons, already in progress.